Hello and welcome. This is episode... Pull up my notes. I have the episode for 13. It's episode 12. It is Tuesday, February 1st, 2.22 p.m. I am Don Johnson. Maybe I said that. Can't remember. Uh, <coughs> yeah, so today we're going to be doing a bunch of news stories. I have a bunch of newspapers sitting here in front of me. Um, yeah, I, I, I had some plans to explain kind of my theory of stories and why I choose the stories that I choose. And I wrote a bunch to talk about. But I feel like uh, that's unnecessary. So I'm just going to read the stories. All right. Okay. Let's just... Okay, that's better. Now I'm loud enough. All right. Is this food Mexican? Ask a judge. Nevada court gets case of two salads and a rice bowl by Alicia A. Caldwell. This is in yesterday's Wall Street Journal. That would be Monday, January... 31st. A Las Vegas shopping center landlord is asking a judge to weigh in on a culinary conundrum that has two restaurants at odds. What is Mexican food? The dishes in question come from the salad chain Chop Stop, which has a location at the shopping center. There's the Viva Mexico Chop Salad, chopped, uh, topped with black beans, jalapenos, tomatoes, cheddar cheese, chicken, and tortilla strips, and the Santa Fe Chop with avocados, roasted corn, and pepper jack cheese. Also at issue is the Chopperito, a bowl with rice, beans, salsa, A10, let's move forward, and up to six toppings. Cafe Rio, a neighboring fast, casual Mexican chain, has argued in court filings that the Chop Stop's offerings violate a provision in its lease that no other restaurant in the same shopping center can make more than 10% of its sales for Mexican or Tex-Mex food. Chop Stop has said in response that its menu items are generic offerings that don't belong in any culinary category. The result has been a grand showdown over the nature of food, culture, and salad ingredients, or what chef and food consultant Sofia Sada Cervantes called, quote, deconstructed Mexican salad symbolism, end quote. The court fight began in 2020 after Cafe Rio invoked a lease provision to cut its rent in half for up to a year if the 10% stipulation was violated and neither the restaurant with the allegedly Mexican dishes nor the landlord took action. Court records show that Cafe Rio began withholding 50% of its rent for its 2,800-square-foot space in September 2020. The restaurant's landlord, Dynamic Town Square Las Vegas LLC, filed a case formerly known as a Complaint for Declaratory Relief in December 2020 after months of discussions among the parties. A lawyer for the landlord, Jeffrey Adelman, declined to disclose the amount of the rent. In November of that year, according to a filing from Dynamic Town Square, Chop Stop, uh, quote, made certain changes to its menu and provided Cafe Rio with documentation that only two potentially questionable salads are less than 10% of its sales, end quote. A quote within a quote. The court filing doesn't detail the menu changes. Uh, <laughs> great. The court filing doesn't detail the menu 
That would be the most fun court filing of all time. Yes, we are, we've adjusted and removed tortilla strips and potentially, uh, I don't know, what, cilantro from these items. So they're technically not in this specific category that we've created. Um, the court finally doesn't detail the menu changes. Cafe Rio continued to argue that the salad shop was violating its lease. Hector Carabajal a lawyer for ChopStop declined to comment on the case. A lawyer for Cafe Rio didn't respond to requests for comment. <laughs> Mr. Adelman said the landlord is just a bystander in the dispute. Quote, I don't know, and frankly, I don't know who does know, what legally defines Mexican food, he said. <laughs> they can fight it out. Chefs and culinary researchers are defining Mexican food or any other ethnic cuisine, say, defining it, uh, Mexican food or any other ethnic cuisine is a challenge, but the answer can often be found in the ingredients. For Ms. Sada, an assistant professor at the Culinary Institute of America, one potential consideration is the Viva Mexico Chop. Uh, for the Viva, Viva Mexico Chop is the use of cheddar cheese. Quote, we don't even have cheddar cheese, said Ms. Sada, who was born and raised in Mexico. Quote, that's not something you find in Mexican cuisine. End quote. Simply having some Mexican ingredients in a dish also doesn't make it Mexican, she added. For me, it's not just because somebody takes a jalapeno or a tortilla, Ms. Sada said. That's just creating a dish using Mexican ingredients. Gustavo Ariano, author of Taco USA, How Mexican Food Conquered America, who wrote about the case for the Los Angeles Times, tried the Viva Mexico salad, and said he didn't find anything especially Mexican or tasty about it. As for the case, quote, two pretty well-financed companies are fighting with each other over the impossible task of deciding what is Mexican food, he said. It's a comedy of errors. I just wish it tasted better, end quote. A lawyer for ChopStop said in legal filings last year that their salad offerings don't violate the lease. Quote, the Santa Fe chop is a salad offering that is neither Mexican nor Tex-Mex, one filing said. The Viva Mexico chop wouldn't count either, the restaurant's lawyer wrote, because only a taco salad would violate the Cafe Rio lease. Oh, well, only a taco salad. You know, not a salad that has tortilla strips in it. I mean, there's, you know. <laughs> that would mean having a corn or flour tortilla base, which the Viva Mexico does not. As for the Chaparrito, now called the Blazin' Bowl at the Las Vegas location, Chop Stop's attorney wrote that it is at best a burrito bowl. Burrito bowls, <laughs> quote, burrito bowls were not created in Mexico or Texas as traditional Mexican or Texas food, end quote, Chop Shop argued. They were created by a Chipotle within the last 15 years in Colorado and, if anything, are a southwestern food that Cafe Rio has no exclusive for. End quote. Chipotle Mexican Grill didn't respond to requests for a comment about whether or not it invented the burrito bowl, which it... I, it, it, I just don't see that as being a possibility. It's literally just the contents of a burrito in a bowl. I'm pretty sure that plenty of people... Had thought of that before then, but yes, perhaps they popularized it in the context of a food you expect someone to have for you. Um, how to categorize food featured in a similar dispute involving a Panera Bread trying to block a Cadoba Mexican Eats restaurant from moving into the same Shrewsbury Mass shopping center. In this case, 
in 2006, a Massachusetts judge had to decide whether burritos, tacos, and quesadillas were sandwiches. The decision cited a dictionary definition describing a sandwich as, quote, two thin pieces of bread, usually buttered with a line layer uh, as of meat, cheese, or savory mixture spread between them. Remember that one more time. Quote, two thin pieces of bread, usually buttered with a line layer as of meat, cheese, or savory mixture spread between them. End quote. To deny the cafe's request to keep Cadoba from becoming its neighbor. Which, I'll just continue. Under the definition and as dictated by common sense, this court finds that the term sandwich is not commonly understood to include burritos, tacos, and quesadillas, which are typically made with a single tortilla and stuffed with a choice filling of meat, rice, and beans, the decision said. In Las Vegas, the trial is set for August. <laughs> which restaurant might pay back rent hinges on the decision, according to Mr. Adelman. Quote, ultimately, we are going to collect from somebody, he said. And I will just editorialize and say, yes, of course you will. And they truly put the punchline at the end of the story. This is good writing. Don't even have to say anything. Except for that part I said in the middle, which I didn't have to say. Let me see. Oh, here we go. This is good stuff. Check out this. Just checking a little more into uh, what the old rockers are up to. Slash opens up on the new drama-free Guns N' Roses. This is by uh, Neil Shaw, same issue. At the peak of Guns N' Roses mania, elite guitarist Slash was a train wreck with a, within a train wreck. The band showed up late for concerts night after night. A few times, fans rioted. Slash drank so much he was eventually given six weeks to live. He and Axl Rose fought and didn't perform on stage together for 23 years. Quote, I really shouldn't be here, Slash says in an interview at his home studio in the San Fernando Valley. Neither should Guns N' Roses. The writer editorialized there. Yet the band, oh, this is an editorial column. I see. This is the personal journal section. I really shouldn't be here, Slash says in an interviewer's home studio in the San Fernando Valley. Neither should Guns N' Roses. Yet the band, which partially reunited in 2016, is now a portrait of dependability, kicking off shows on time and delivering reliably with little to no controversy. Or is it controversy? Quote, Axel's always been great to work with, but then there were also times when things were really, really difficult. That hasn't presented itself in the last six years, says Slash, 56. He's been super, super fucking professional, and actually less moody than me even, and I'm not even a moody guy. End quote. The new drama-free Guns N' Roses has been a boon for pandemic-stricken live music businesses. The band's 2016 to 2019 reunion tour is the third highest grossing concert tour in music history. In 2021, they grossed nearly $50 million with plans to resume this summer. Why wouldn't you? Now their attention is shifting to new music. Slash has a solo album, Four, out February 11th, featuring singer Miles Kennedy and The Conspirators. 
on February 25th, Guns N' Roses, which includes bassist Duff McKagan, releases its first collection of songs since the reunion, a four-track mini-album, including two songs from Mr. Rose's vault that have been newly reworked by Slash and Mr. McKagan. More of Mr. Rose's Guns N' Roses material is coming along with a reissue of a 1991 two-and-a-half-hour-long double release, Use Your Illusion, which includes songs like November Rain and Don't Cry. A representative for Guns N' Roses didn't respond to requests for comment. Guns N' Roses' surprising sturdiness as a touring juggernaut owes much to the rekindling of the friendship between Mr. Rose and Slash. For Slash, it all started with an inquiry into video footage of the band's two-and-a-half-year, 194-show Use Your Illusion tour, a trove he once called the Holy Grail of Guns N' Roses. I was talking to Guns N' Roses management about making sure all that stuff was intact, Slash says. And then I thrown out the idea, it'd be great to find a producer to put this together as a film. As Slash and Axel's people talked more in the 2010s, Mr. Rose's team broached the idea of reuniting. Uh, reuniting. Fernando Labus, a Guns N' Roses manager, met Slash while he was on tour and said, there was something going on. Slash says. The guitarist shrugged it off. Quote, I hadn't come around yet at all. I was really anti for years. He's a man of <laughs> complex words. One of Slash's complaints, which he discusses in his autobiography, is Mr. Rose's acquisition of the Guns N' Roses name in the 1990s. Slash viewed this as Mr. Rose resting control. Mr. Rose, in a in a post on a fan website, argued that he wanted the name for protection because he feared being fired. Later, when Slash was in Peru, he got a call. <laughs> Later, when Slash was in Peru, he got a call saying Mr. Rose wanted to talk. The two exchanged niceties by phone. That led to a stake. That led to a steak meal at Mr. Rose's L.A. home. After that, one of rock and roll's biggest feuds ended quickly, according to Slash. Over time, and uh, lack of communicating and gossip and media, all this stuff sort of built up, the storm of negativity. But it was like a cloud you could stick your hand through, he says. Asked what they had to work through to bury this hatchet, Slash dem demurs. What happened with the Guns N' Roses name is a dead issue. I don't want to say my version is the right version, he says. Everybody's version of things is, quote, their own version and their own reality. End quote. He and Mr. Rose and Mr. McKagan remain stakeholders in the business partnership that started in the 1980s. Quote, we've always been partners. Reconciling with Mr. Rose removed a huge psychological burden, Slash says. You don't even realize how heavy the weight of that much bad blood or negative energy feels until you've got rid of it, he says. He regrets uh, venting publicly when promoting projects such as his band in a 2000s Velvet Revolver. I remember being extremely arrogant for the longest time, he says. Four, uh, number four, the album is what it's called, just the number four, uh, his new solo album slash hired producer dave cobb who like him grew up listening to led zeppelin and acdc slash and mr cobb recorded the guitarist's new tunes live in the studio a strategy reminiscent 
of the raw, more organic production techniques of the 1970s and 80s. To do that was really fucking liberating, Slash says, for a rock and roll band, it's essential to get the buzz out of the material to have everybody really synergizing. At the same time, Slash helped Mr. Rose to retool unreleased songs from when Mr. Rose was the only original member of Guns N' Roses left in the band. The hope is that these songs help push Mr. Rose and Slash to write and record new tracks in the studio. Quote, One of the things that Axel wanted to get off his chest was a bunch of material that he'd recorded, Slash says. So we thought, well, that's a good way to wet our feet. There is no official strategy yet about releasing music. There are no cut-and-dried answers, Slash says. But it's still Guns N' Roses. It's extremely rock and roll. I love discussing the stakeholders of my rock and roll band that makes $50 million in a single tour. Here's some fun information from the News Press, Monday, January 31st. In the know on the front page, new data, Southwest Florida is America's leader of emerging markets. Folks might look at Thursday's local stats showing a chilling drop in real estate sales in December and believe the market is cooling off rapidly with the plummeting temperatures. This is written by uh, Phil Fernandez, Naples Daily News. He writes for the uh, USA Today Network. Florida, but he, he basically writes all the major stories of any kind of uh, development in the area. True, Thursday afternoon's numbers revealed closed, closed sales were down 24% from a year ago in the Naples area, um, according to the Board of Realtors, also known as NABOR. And from there, it basically goes on to say that residential sales are down, but it's fine because commercial sales are up. And it goes on to mention that... Um, there's another article by the same author in the same issue of the paper, and it says it's titled Blackstone Group Among Purchasers. In the know by Phil Fernandez, investors have been scouring Southwest Florida to grab whatever they can get their hands on the nation's hottest market. A brand new National Association of Realtors report put Southwest Florida at the top of America's most sizzling commercial metros. None of its best 15 are in the Sunshine State, and three Nine of its best of, of the 15 are in the Sunshine State, and three of those in the, are in this region, Naples, Cape Coral, Fort Myers, and Sarasota, Bradenton. On the whole, these top markets generally have strong job growth and are, are experiencing net domestic in-migration, people moving to the state, um, and have low vacancy rates and greater rate of, of absorption of commercial property and are experiencing strong rent growth compared to nationally, said Scholastica, Gay, Coronation, an NAR research economist. Now, affordable housing is where it's at with at least four area apartment complexes selling for a combined $70 million in the past couple of weeks or so. Blackstone Group, the globe's biggest commercial real estate owner and private landlord, is a payer in half of them. Another was picked up by the nation's fourth largest affordable housing provider, Minnesota's Domnium, which has a publicly stated goal of becoming of becoming by 20, 2025 the country's preeminent private developer, owner, and property manager of affordable housing. Last week, we reported that the fourth 
of these now falls under the umbrella of a comparable unknown, New Jersey-based Terra Financial Services, which assists real estate operators and investors. Whether for this type of dwelling or other kinds of apartments and homes, it's a sign of the times for Southwest Florida, according to Lucas Professor of Real Estate, H. Shelton Weeks of Florida Gulf Coast University, uh, Lutgert College of Business. He says, This activity points to the severity of the housing shortage in the region. Investors are drawn to the market because they see the potential for increasing rents and low vacancy, Weeks told me. One positive aspect of this influx of investment is what we are likely to see uh, more high-quality additions to our market in the future, as well as older properties in the area being renovated and brought in line with current market standards. In other words, everything that's remotely old will be uh, destroyed or sought to be destroyed, and the property will be redeveloped into something newer. Um, A pattern that's happened in every area, but a pattern that's happening in our city after just uh, I don't know, 30 years, it's being completely reinvented again, but that's that's what's happening. Uh, $881 billion in assets. Enter the expeditiously expanding Kingdom of Blackstone, which in the paperwork for these, le- these local purchases... used its mighty Chicago address at the Willis Tower that it possesses. From its perch at the former Sears Tower, previously Earth's tallest building, the powerful behemoth looks over uh, a lot of its $881 billion in assets. That represents a 42% increase in the past year, CEO Steve Schwartzman said in a Thursday evening's earnings call. With logistics and life science space, rentals are a big part of it, Schwartzman said. In the United States, we're now seeing rents in these sectors grow, with two to three times the rate of inflation. Life science space. Logistics and life science space. So that's what they call business space now, is logistics and life science space. In the United States, we're now seeing rents in these sectors grow two to three times the rate of inflation. And at the cost of new construction, as the cost of new construction rises with inflation, it greatly benefits the value of our existing holdings, Schwartzman said. Our holdings are concentrated in areas with strong secular growth that are more resilient to rising input costs. Two of its new Southwest Florida affordable housing conquests include Hawks Landing, built in 2004 on 10.5 acres, the 204-unit and its 192,750 square feet off Summerlin Road in Fort Myers, was purchased for $16.2 million, according to the public and realtor records. And the 340-unit Burnwood Trace, with its 395,421 square feet constructed in 2000, spread over 14.72 acres in Fort Myers, bought for $24.4 million. The latter stood out for its location to the always sharp Paige Roush of Aslan Realty Advisors, who helped me along on the recent research trail. The units are off Six Mile Winkler near the hospital site and the new proposed Amazon site which I will uh, dig into and report on, Roush said. Uh, Sundial South Seas Waldorf Astoria. And with 950 million square feet of logistics real estate, Blackstone is known for gobbling up Amazon spots around the nation and lots and lots and lots of everything. Around here, for example, it's been buying and selling luxury uh, hotels over the years, a far cry from lower rent living, 
such as former Waldorf Astoria Naples, Sanibel's Sundial Resort, Captiva's South Seas Resort, and the Edgewater Beach Hotel in Naples. It was part of the 2014 purchase for $39.9 million of the 458,394 square foot, the Forum, at Fort Myers, and 119,709 square foot North Point Shopping Center on Pine Island Road in Cape Coral. And it swooped in with mobile home acquisitions such as the 147-unit Endless Summer RV Resort in Naples for $3.95 million in 2019. A decade ago, it created its rental empire by rolling out an ambitious campaign to buy distressed residential properties in southwest Florida and other spots, and made enormous profits. In October 2012 alone, Blackstone went on an $80 million home buying spree in 11 Sunshine State counties, all in cash. Its practices have drawn fire from the United Nations and a few Congress members. Democratic Senator Ron Wyden has proposed a bill that would close whatever loopholes allow large investors to seek outsized profits in taxpayer-funded affordable housing. However, Blackstone is formidable, ranking 15th out of 33,000 organizations tracked by OpenSecrets.org with $44 million tied to it in political contributions in the 2020 election cycle alone, much of it going to the Republican-oriented Senate Leadership Fund. As it loads up on tens of thousands of apartments, Blackstone says it intends to maintain affordability even after federal and state rent controls expire over the next decade or two. Quote, these communities would provide critical affordable housing, and we look forward to being long-term owners, Blackstone said in a statement. We will make significant investments to improve the apartments while ensuring they remain affordable and in compliance with all recent regulations. $5 million renovation at Crossings at Cape Coral. Last Monday, it acquired for $3.7 billion Resource REIT, which, according to its website, had a portfolio of 45 apartment complexes in Florida and a dozen other states, but none are in this region. The new Southwest Florida transactions are part of another larger portfolio deal with Broward-based Cornerstone Group selling 42 properties to Blackstone, according to industry magazine The Real Deal. While Blackstone hasn't revealed specific plans for the properties, Dominium shared what it has in mind for its $22.8 million pickup, The Crossings at Cape Coral, 1150 Hancock Street South uh, Boulevard, a mile from the Target at Pondella and Pine Island Roads. A year from now, the firm plans a $5 million renovation for the 168-unit complex, its first deal in Lee County and third in Southwest Florida after 2012's Whistler's Green Apartments in Naples and 2018's Seven Palms Apartments in Punta Gorda, according to Mike Voss, Director of Communications. Dominium forces almost exclusively, excuse me, Dominium focuses almost exclusively on development and long-term ownership and management of affordable housing. This focus has been continual since the company was founded 50 years ago, Voss told me. That was a quote from him. Given the growth of the Southwest Florida region and the pressure that puts on affordable housing, we anticipate finding a number of potential new developments or renovation opportunities in the area. The group has 4,489 units across 19 properties in Florida and 938 new units under construction in Bradenton, Kissimmee, and Poinciana, Voss said. 
Nationally, it has over $3 billion in owned properties, with more than 37,000 apartments in 19 states. The smaller Terra Financial is tied to the Fort Myers Portfolio LLC that for 6.5 million nabbed 92-unit Sunrise Towers on the 2800 block of Central Avenue. The complex has had a history of code enforcement violations, including the collapse of a stairwell. The firm's representatives have not returned messages for comment. Two of your favorite brands you ask me about all the time are ready to launch at the northwest corner of Immokalee Road and Collier Boulevard in Naples. Reps for both Aldi Grocery and Chick-fil-A restaurants say their official open date is February 10th at, on the Five Acres uh, at uh, Addison Place, where dental where a dental place also opened a month ago. But as all of us witnessed many times in the past, you may want to take a peek in the days prior to see if a soft open is going on. Alley is getting closer to a new Lee County spot as well. Quote, the Cape Coral store on Santa Barbara Boulevard is scheduled to open in the spring, says Chris Hewitt, Aldi's Royal Palm Beach Division vice president. That was all in the same article. All right. USA Today, uh, 50 states section yesterday. Colorado, Denver. Democratic Secretary of State Jenna Griswold said Friday that she is consulting with the state's top prosecutor in a case of Republican election official who allegedly copied his voting system's hard drive, which then got in the hands of two unauthorized attorneys. Illinois, Fairmount. A plan to cut more than 1,400 trees from a Boy Scouts of America campground is causing disagreement among Scout officials and residents, and the logger is already about half complete. Lansing, Michigan, deaths exceeding births in the state in 2020, a rare result influenced by the COVID-19 pandemic, statistics show. Santa Fe, New Mexico, Democratic Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham now backs a $15 minimum wage for school workers. The governor's budget proposal to the legislature earlier this month had called for a $15 minimum for state workers, but not for educators and other school staff. And in Columbus, Ohio, a group seeking to legalize use and cultivation of small amounts of marijuana has gathered enough signatures to put the issue in front of legislators. Secretary of State Frank LaRose said Friday. That's really all I could find in the USA Today, except for the fact that Blackstone Inc. mentioned in the previous article, right as it was making news that day, rose 13.2% on the news that I just read. So imagine I just read that article to you, and you're like, wow, cool, great. And then you went and bought some Blackstone. Well, a lot of people did. Here's something. Uh, business and finance section of the Wall Street Journal. Uh, Losses plague grocery delivery startups by Elliot Brown and Pratika Rana. Since Hyung Park moved to Manhattan last year, he estimates he has taken in more than $400 of free cookies and ice cream, laundry detergent, and other groceries delivered to his door, all courtesy of a wave of rapid delivery grocery startups offering generous referral and discount codes. 
quote, I have not paid for toilet paper, paper towels, dish soap, or hand soap, said the 23-year-old founder of a small online auction startup. He said, for most orders, his only costs are generally tip and tax. Quote, as a consumer, I think it's fantastic. Adventure... <laughs> a venture capital-backed battle is raging in New York City in the burgeoning field of instant delivery. At least six startups, including Gorillas Technology Limited, Joker, spelt J-O-K-R-S-A-R-L, um, let's see, Gatir Parakend Logistic, L-O-J-S-T-I-K, and uh, let's see, the next one is Bike, B-U-Y-K Corp are vying for the chance to ferry groceries to customers within 10 to 20 minutes of their order placement on an app. Prices are similar to grocery stores, discounts are plentiful, and many services don't have a fee or minimum order, allowing consumers to request a single pint of Ben & Jerry's delivered to their doorstep. Food delivery app DoorDash Inc., based in San Francisco, also recently entered the fray in New York City. While these consumer-friendly offerings have brought surging sales, losses are heavy given the high cost of prolific advertising and paying couriers to hand-deliver potato chips, soap, and eggs in a short time frame, industry investors and executives said. Some of the companies are averaging a loss of over $20 an order while factoring in costs like advertising, these people said. Quote, their economics are brutal, said Damir Berakovic, a principal at a venture capital firm, Index Ventures, which hasn't invested in any of the startups. He added that if any of the companies can build a giant business with efficiencies from scale, that picture could change, but the short-term challenges seem daunting. Take, for example, Fridge No More, Inc., a New York-based company that launched in 2020. As of September, its average order value was $33, according to a 2021 investor present. <laughs> an investor presentation viewed by the Wall Street Journal. After paying for the products, people... <laughs> wow. After paying for the products, the people packaging them, the delivery riders, wastes, and other expenses related to storage, it lost $3.30 on every order. That doesn't include marketing costs. Fridge No More spent $70 on advertising to win the average customer, an investment that resulted in a $78 loss for every customer that stayed in the 10 months through September, according to the presentation. Co-founder Pavel Danilov said that the company's margins have improved since then and that it now spends much less marketing to consumers. Executives and backers of the company say losses today are investments in a promising... Oh, B2. Investors in a promising prize. Groceries are already an enormous business, and if one or two of the startups grow to dominate the market for quick groceries, the numbers could eventually turn profitable, they say. Quote, in the early minutes of a plane just taking off, it consumes a lot of gas, said Nazim Salur, founder of Istanbul-based Getir, which raised money last summer at a $7.5 billion valuation. Once Gatir grows large enough, the business will become profitable, he said, something he has seen firsthand with early Gatir locations in Turkey. Since 2020, investors have poured more than $5.5 billion into the six instant delivery players competing in New York City, with over 90% of that funding raised in the past year, according to Gordon Haskett, 
research advisors. Most of that went to GoPuff, a Philadelphia-based startup that started delivering to smaller cities and expanded to New York City only late last year. Some of the other companies have a bigger presence in foreign markets, including Europe, where labor costs are often lower. For the U.S., the startups will have largely focused on New York City because its dense population is so well-suited for quick delivery, which would also make sense for market experimentation. It's a, such a dense marketplace that you could have lots of testing without having a very large test area. The companies say they could pair losses by selling ads for existing brands or by selling their own brands. They also aim to drive up order sizes with more expensive items like alcohol and invest in technology that more efficiently distributes labor across their warehouses. As couriers carry more orders per trip, delivery costs will fall, they say. Rapid delivery has been something of a holy grail for investors and entrepreneurs for decades. Companies including Cosmo Inc., uh, Cosmo.com Inc., with a K, and Urban Fetch, with a hyphen in the middle, Inc., uh, were briefly investor darlings of the, the dot-com boom in the late 90s. Both went out of business after losses mounted. Larger companies have tried fast delivery, but efforts have resulted in slower delivery times or quick retreats. I would love to look at those ones from the 90s. A same-day delivery service by eBay, Inc. ended in 2015 amid a restructuring... Amazon.com, Inc., which has long been building infrastructure for faster delivery, made its debut one hour, uh, made its debut of one hour delivery in New York in 2014, two decades after it was founded. It charges a $9.99 fee on orders under $35. Hmm. Beyond labor and marketing, major expenses for rapid delivery include leasing retail storefronts throughout Manhattan and Brooklyn used as mini warehouses and the cost of bikes or scooters for deliveries. It's incredibly difficult. Quote, it's incredibly difficult to get those numbers to work unless you're selling small but high value goods, said Matt Newberg, founder of Hungry, spelt H-N-G-R-Y. May I editorialize that all these companies kind of feel like they had the same name. An industry publication that explores how technology is reshaping food. If it's a toothbrush and banana, that's not going to work. The assortment of goods the companies offer is limited and sometimes eclectic, ranging from batteries to bone broth. Gordon Haskett found that while the upstarts boast of an ever-expanding portfolio of household items in New York City, at least four companies didn't deliver bananas a consumer staple. The companies are avoiding perishables, so they aren't burning money on inventory that goes back quickly, and beefing up their packaged food offerings instead. Adding to the challenge, most of the startups don't use the low-cost labor model of Uber Technologies, Inc. and Lyft, Inc. Very short article. I just found it interesting because I didn't really know much about what's happening in American ports. This is by Paul Berger. Port congestion in U.S. spreads. Port congestion is spreading across the country, threatening to extend shipping delays and drive up costs for importers seeking to get around the bottlenecks at the Southern California uh, Big Gateway Complex. Container ships are backing up off coastlines 
uh, from Oakland, California to Charleston, South Carolina, because of record flow of boxes in and out of the country combined with worker shortages triggered by COVID-19's fast-spreading Omicron variant. It's supremely frustrating, quote, it's supremely frustrating to be an importer right now, said Nathan Strong, director of Ocean Trade Lane Management at Flexport, Inc., a San Francisco freight forwarder. Quote, everybody wants to find a relief valve and all of the relief valves have been plugged, end quote. Ship backups that plagued U.S. ports throughout the pandemic have been mainly concentrated along the West Coast. Niels Madsen, a vice president of operations at Denmark-based Sea Intelligence APS, said a rise in backups at the East Coast ports suggests congestion is worsening there. The average wait time for a berth at the busiest East Coast gateway, the port of New York and New Jersey, extended to 4.2 days last week, according to the port's data, up from 1.6 days last January. At the port of Charleston on Thursday, a backup of 19 container ships was waiting offshore for a berth. The New Jersey, um, excuse me, the New Jersey port officials say its congestion is being caused in part by COVID-19 related worker absences. Charleston officials say their backup is mainly due to a surge of imports that clogged terminals. The number of containers waiting more than 15 days for pickup at Charleston, the country's eighth largest gateway for container imports, exceeded 7,000 last week, a rise of 40% compared to a month earlier, according to the supply chain analytics from firm Project 44. Charleston officials say it could take six weeks to clear the backlog. Six weeks... Six weeks to clear a four-day backlog. Georgia's Port of Savannah said this month it cleared the backlog that had grown to more than 20 vessels late last year. All right. So that was 20 vessels over in three weeks, maybe. The port opened new container storage sites, including temporary facilities, said Griff Lynch, executive director at the Georgia Ports Authority, which operates the Savannah Port. If you've seen those photos, it does make you wonder the way they are lined up. It makes you wonder how long before it is just like a train of ships crossing the ocean. Um, restaurants trim value menus. Some chains are shrinking portions or offering fewer discounted items by Heather Haddon. This is in the business news section of the Wall Street Journal from yesterday. Some chains are shrinking portions uh, due to inflation. That's basically the situation. Inflation is coming to a longtime refugee of price-conscious consumers' restaurant value menus. Burger King, Denny's Corp., and Domino's Pizza, Inc. are among the chains that are reducing their menu of discounted items or shrinking portions to try to improve their margins, executives said. Some chain executives hope the trimming of discount menus at and meal deals might bring less pushback from consumers than straight price increases. McDonald's Corp. earlier this year began letting franchisees sell sodas for higher prices after all sizes of the drinks were promoted nationally for a dollar for several years, the company and franchisees said. Denny's issuing uh, Denny's is promoting fewer low-cost items on its menu at the family dining chain. Executives said more customers are willing to pay for a sit-down experience. I want the $9 omelet. I want the gourmet pancakes. I want a second round of coffee. I'm not here for a deal, Denny's chief executive 
John Miller told investors last month. The chain still has a pancake meal deal starting at $4, but no longer advertises a whole value menu of items between $2 and $8, he said in an industry conference. Fascinating. U.S. consumer prices are climbing, with a 7% annual increase in December representing the biggest gain since 1982, the Labor Department said. Supply chain challenges and strong demand and consumer stimulus payments are all contributing to rising prices, economists say. Restaurant prices rose 6% in the year, ended December, the biggest increase in nearly four decades, federal figures show. Many chains increased prices multiple times last year as they tried to compensate for rising costs for labor, food, and materials, and have said that more increases could come in 2022 if the inflation persists. Customers are starting to notice restaurants' higher prices. Diners reviewing restaurants online in the last three months of 2021 were increasingly negative about the value of what they perceived compared to the same period in 2019, according to the Black Box Intelligence. This is a company, Black Box Intelligence, which regularly tracks consumers' online comments about restaurants. What a, <laughs> an amazing company. At fast food brands, customers noted, quote, not worth it, and, quote, waste of money. Wendy's Co. and Taco Bell began introducing value menus in the late 1980s. McDonald's started its dollar menu in 2002 and began pricing value items nationally at $1, 2 or $3 in 2018. When the pandemic arrived, chains began scaling down menus to simplify operations. Data Essential found U.S. chains promoted 140 combo and value meals last year, less than half the number in 2016, Data Essential research shows. McDonald's and its franchisees are looking at how to alter combo deals to increase prices without inviting more competition or scaring off competitors, chief executive, or scaring off diners. The idea of scaring off competitors. Chief Executive Chris Kempensi said in an interview last month, U.S. menu prices rose around 6% last year annually, and the chain expects to face further cost pressures this year. Quote, you spend a lot more time thinking about bundled offers and different ways to still deliver value to the customer, but also make sure that you're not able to miss them on pricing, Mr. Kempensi said. McDonald's is facing the worst inflation in more than a decade, and... Uh, McDonald's has told investors Thursday that its recent surveys show diners think the chain offers good value for the money and executives are watching to make sure that continues. Burger King has been able to reduce its number of value items since last year with executives of parent company Restaurant Brands International Inc. telling investors that too many discounts were confusing customers and eroding profits. The company is making nearly a dozen changes to its U.S. menus, which could help profits across restaurants by nearly $500 million a year, according to a January presentation viewed by the Wall Street Journal. So they're going to uh, price restructure and they're going to save a uh, half a billion dollars. The changes include lifting price caps on value menu items, so raising the price on what is called the value menu, reducing the number of nuggets to eight pre- <laughs> Here it is. Here's the key information. Reducing the amount of nuggets from eight pieces to eight pieces from 10. 
in one deal and increasing the nugget french fry and bacon cheeseburger prices, the presentation showed. Your junior bacon cheeseburger is now going to be more expensive. The company is considering removing a signature Whopper from core discounts, it stated. A Burger King spokeswoman said the company doesn't comment on sales and marketing strategies. Domino's is reducing the number of chicken pieces in its $7.99 carryout deal to 8 from 10. Chief Executive Richard Allison said earlier this month, the company is also limiting the deal to online orders only, which are cheaper to process than when customers call a restaurant, of course. Domino's is making the changes in response to higher labor costs and an increase in food costs in at least 8% this year compared with 2021. And there is more, but that's enough. And how about this? If that was too much for you, then think about this. I love this. Here's the lineup for TBS tonight. Big Bang Theory, Big Bang Theory, Big Bang Theory, Big Bang Theory, American Dad. Close enough, American Dad and American Dad. And that's all starting at 8 o'clock. That's great. Also, there's a great new documentary about how um, Bill Cosby ruined a bunch of people's lives, apparently. Oh, this is uh, this is the key thing. Okay, so this is on the back of uh, yesterday's USA Today. This is a gigantic back page paid ad that is made to look as if it is actually a page within the paper. Although it does say paid advertisement at the very top, but it is it is definitely um, uh, it's an ad by the Chinese government to someone just reading the newspaper saying, hey, the Olympics happening here ain't that bad. It's basically what's going on. So I'll, I'll just read. This is, uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not making this up. It's written by China Watch. And it says above China Watch, all you need to know. This is by China Daily. Games aim streamlined, safe, Splendid. Venues have passed operational tests and little more needs to be done than light the flame and let athletes do their thing. Beijing is well and truly prepared to host Beijing 2022 Winter Olympics and Paralympics despite the challenges posed by the pandemic, games officials say. The National Stadium, also known as the Bird's Nest, will host the opening ceremony of the games on February 4th, meaning Beijing will become the first city to host both a summer and winter games, said Zhao Zhenfeng, deputy director of the Organizing Committee's Media and Communications Department. Beijing organized the Summer Olympics in 2008. For the past six years, the Organizing Committee has worked closely with the International Olympic Committee, the International Paralympic Committee, and sports organizations to ensure preparations for the Games are completed on time, Zhao said on January 18th. Quote, the construction of all 12 competition venues has been completed, and they have all passed assessments and, con and conducted by international sports organizations, she said. The facilities also successfully hosted a series of test events between October and December. Test events have proven that the preparations are adequate, said Li Sen, Director General of the Organizing Committee's General Planning Department. Quote, everything is in place, and we will go all out in the final stage of preparation to ensure the games are streamlined, safe, and splendid. The International Olympic Committee's Olympic Games Executive Director Christoph Doobie said this month that only slight modifications had been made to the operational plans. 
quote. The venues are ready, Doobie said during a video interview after arriving in Beijing to help assess the final preparations. Quote, they look fantastic. They have now received the look of the games, and frankly, it's impeccable. To minimize the impact of the games on the natural environment, the optimum use was being made of existing venues and facilities, said Yan Jerong, a spokeswoman for the organizing committee. The National Aquatic Center, known as the Water Cube during the 2008 Olympics, has been rebadged the Ice Cube and the Wukasong Sports Center, used for the basketball uh, event in 2008, will be the venue for ice hockey, she said. A consultant for the Games, Anthony Edgar, said that when China put forward the 2008 bid, it spoke of leaving a legacy. Now people can see how that legacy is progressing, even as a new one has been put in place, he said. Edgar said he is impressed by the new National Alpine Skiing Center and the National Sliding Center in the Jiangxing uh, Competition Zone that will host alpine skiing, bobsleigh, skeleton, and the luge competitions during the games. It's really pretty up there, and I think it's going to look spectacular on television. I think it's going to surprise a lot of people because most Westerners or people who have never been to China don't realize how beautiful the mountains are. Lee, of the organizing committee's planning department, said, Given that the snow events will be held mainly in the mountains, measures have been taken to reduce the impact on the environment. Quote, we have employed a series of measures to reduce impact on animals in the competition zones, including setting up wildlife corridors, laying out artificial bird nests, and standardizing construction behaviors. Standardizing construction behaviors. Interesting terminology. At the same time, we have carried out ecological restoration. We have done many things to collect, store, and recycle rainwater and snowmelt water to use water resources efficiently. Reducing carbon emissions has also been a top priority at every stage of the games. The four stadiums to host ice events have used new carbon dioxide refrigerants. All the venues will be wholly powered by electricity converted from renewable energy by means of wind, hydropower, and solar photovoltaics, Lee said. Quote, also, more than 80% of the vehicles used during the games will be energy-saving and clean energy vehicles to build a low-carbon transportation system, Lee said. An important part of the preparations has been epidemic control measures to protect the health of participants. Lee said the games, whose February 4th opening coincides with spring festival holiday this year, will provide a great opportunity to provoke, promote cultural exchange. It continues below, sort of. There's something missing from this article. I don't know if you've heard it yet, but it's missing. Goal of increasing participation in winter sports has already been met. China has exceeded its goal of involving 300 million people in winter sports before the Beijing Winter Olympics, and researchers are predicting a sustainable future. Thanks to promotions around the Olympics, which will open in February 4th, growing public interest in the improvement of facilities, the number of Chinese people who have taken part in winter sports training, amateur or professional competitions, in outdoor or indoor winter sports-related 
Leisure Activities has reached $346 million. Excuse me. 346 million people against a goal of 300 million set in 2015 when Beijing won the Olympic bid, the country's winter sport governing body said in a report published on January 12th. The report was based on a survey conducted by the National Bureau of Statistics with information collected from 40,100 respondents in 31 provincial level regions across the country since October. The figures meant one in four Chinese people have taken part in winter sports and activities at least once, it said. Among those polled, 38.4% said they took part in winter sports and activities once or twice a year, and 70.3% got involved for recreation and entertainment, as opposed to other reasons, such as fitness and professional athletics. The realization of the engagement target, a main selling point in Beijing's winning bid for the 2022 Winter Olympics has raised expectations in the world of winter sports of the great market potential in the world's most populous country. Quote, these winter games will open a new era for winter sports globally as 300 million Chinese will become familiar with sport on snow and ice, International Olympic Committee President Thomas Bosch said in a New Year message. Johan Ilashk president of the International Ski Federation, said China's future in global winter sports is bright, and he said he expects many opportunities for collaboration with the country's winter sports governing body. Quote, When it comes to snow sports, China has so much potential to make an impact on the recreational and professional sports landscape and the potential to bring the sports to the next level, Lai Shak said. A country with the ambition to bring 300 million people to our sport is a testament to its long-term vision and an amazing opportunity. It is an opportunity that the International Ski Federation is pleased to support. The National Winter Sports Administrative Center said that by the beginning of last year, China had built 654 ice rinks, 317% more than existed in 2015. They've tripled the number of ice rinks and the 803 ski resorts. 41% more than existed in 2015. Such rapid development in facilities is laying a solid foundation for businesses operating in winter sports and related outdoor leisure activities whose total value is estimated to be 800 billion yuan, approximately $125 billion. By the end of this year, according to a paper on mass sports participation and sports consumption issued by State Council in 2019. Quote, The realization of the goal can be greatly attributed to the investment in facility development, the education of youth in schools, and the improvement of amateur training at the grassroots level, said Wang Yushong, director of the Sports Economics Research Center at the Central University of Finance and Economics in Beijing. This is not the end, but only the beginning for sustainable development of the winter sports sector in China because of the post-Olympics influence and people's growing demand for a healthier lifestyle and diversified recreational activities. Okay. Winter sports have it all. He closes it out. I will read at the bottom. China Watch materials are distributed by China Daily Distribution Corp. on behalf of China Daily Beijing China. Additional information is on file with the Department of Justice, Washington, D.C.
And uh, I don't even want to read what's left. That was plenty. Let's see. Please enjoy this beautiful song. 